Welcome to A Well-Cared-For Human, the podcast that tries to convince you that you are 100% normal and an even better-than-okay example of the human species, despite the fact that sometimes we feel like the craziest, most incapable, or worthless creatures on the face of this planet. I'm Corey, an author, a creative, and the host of the show. Whatever you're bringing to the table today, I hope this episode proves to be a dose of inspiration for you on your quest to become a well-cared-for human. You can find the episode show notes, your free wellness blueprint, and more at awellcaredforhuman.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Hello humans, it's your host Corey, and today we're going to talk about money. No, I will not be giving you financial advice, I'm not qualified to do so. Though I do think a working understanding of money is essential to our well-being. And that's mostly what I want to focus on today, the connection between money and well-being. Specifically how, if I'm not paying close attention, money can make me very, very unwell. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's go back to the beginning. My views of money and my relationship to money, like for most people, stems from my family. My father came from a poor working-class family centered in an industrial town near St. Louis. He was one of six kids and so poor that by nine he had a job as a shoeshine boy, shining the shoes of the drunks in the local taverns. My mother's relationship with money was even more tumultuous, The only source of income in her family was my grandfather, who by day ran a garage and worked as a mechanic, and his side hustle was, and this is not a joke, a whorehouse. My grandmother called it his whorehouse. And so this man, that was her sole role model for money. He didn't let his wife work, and my mom was sent to this whorehouse to pick up money from the girls when she was just a young teenager herself. And this was after she had been expelled for being sent to school with pills to sell for him because she was caught with these pills in eighth grade. So from all of this, I'm sure you can imagine the negative beliefs and ideas and narratives that my mother had about money and power. And my parents met and fell in love pretty young. Their courtship was all of three months. My mom got pregnant right after that. So now they have a baby and they're living in a trailer park down by the river, two dropouts with not much education or prospects, and they're going to have to find a way to make it work in this world. And while my mom is home with me, my dad starts making money as a handyman, doing building maintenance, repairs, electrical, that sort of thing. He starts working for apartment complexes. They leave the trailer behind and buy a little house, two bedrooms. So now their daughter, me is three or four, and they've got a backyard and a dog, and things are looking pretty good. Unless, of course, you've listened to Who Killed My Mother, the podcast, because then you know what happens next, which is my father is arrested for rape, all of their progress is lost, he goes off to the penitentiary, and my mother and I go back to my grandparents' house in Nashville. She's only 24, with a kid, no real education or job history, And so she has little choice but to go back to her childhood home at the expense of her mental health and safety. And so here we are living in Nashville. We're scraping by on food stamps and the like. And then my father finally gets out of prison and he has a plan. He is determined to build a company, a refab pallet business. And if you don't know what pallets are, they're these wooden, well, they look like flat crates, actually. 
And if you've ever been in a Sam's Club or a Costco, you've probably seen them on the floor beneath all the products because that's what they're used for is to ship the products on. And at the height of his day, my father was doing very well for himself. He had contracts with some pretty big-name companies, names that you would recognize if I said them. My father probably did so well because his quest for success became the center of his existence once he returned home. And all of this is to paint a picture of what my earliest impressions and experiences with money were, what my parents believed about money, because all of these beliefs, by the time I was 20 years old, would become my views. I would take these ideas, these narratives around money, and I would make them the center of my existence too. Because like my father, I also became obsessed with financial independence, with achievement, with proving myself. And primarily, I held two narratives around money. Or honestly, I should say, I have two narratives around money, present tense, because these are still active parts of my psyche, my personality, that I have to remain aware of and talk sense to on a regular basis. These two narratives have twined together and formed the core of most of my motivations. Everything I did, I did because I believed these two stories. The first story from my mother was that to be without money was to be in danger. My mom had to move back to her rapist's house, had her PTSD triggered, in order to take care of herself and her child. But even then, she could really only get by, and she had this idea that she needed to rely on other people for help, that she couldn't really generate enough security on her own. And so she was never free from her toxic family, from the violence, from the abuse, from the invalidation, because she could not afford to be free of them. She couldn't afford to get the help and support or treatment that she needed to get better. And so because of her experiences and because of how they affected me growing up, I believed that to be poor meant that you were in danger. And for a lot of people, that's true. So this core motivation was pushing me to go to school, to take on student loan debt, to get an education, because I had this fear that if I couldn't make money, if I didn't have options, that I would not be safe. People could hurt me. People could use me. I might have to do things I don't want to do in order to survive. That's the story I learned from my mom. And it intersects with the second story that I inherited from my father. Because my dad had such a chip on his shoulder when he got out of prison, he wanted to get rich and prove that everything that everyone believed about him was wrong. And he was so narrowly focused on this quest for success that when I was growing up, from the time I was eight, when he got out of prison well into my 20s, everything he said and did felt like it was about money. What he bought, where he went, how he demonstrated his success to other people, how he showed it off. From all of this, it was clear to me, even from a very young age, that he valued money. And it was also very clear to me that he did not value me. Because at the same time, he was criticizing me, he was telling me that I'm worthless like my mom and that I would always be like her. And because I'm so desperate to make him love me, to make him proud of me, to make him see me, my little brain somehow arrived at the conclusion that if all my dad cares about, if all he values is money, then I have to become money. I must become money and then he will value me. Then he will care about me. Then I will matter to him. So here I go, running down my own path, getting all the degrees, trying to publish all the books, establish my own career as a writer. And let me tell you, I obviously did not think this through because no one who wants to be rich 
becomes a writer. Most writers make no more than $1,000 a year. Digital Book World just did a survey actually a few years ago, and according to the survey, 53.9% of traditionally published writers, 43.6% of hybrid writers, meaning they have some traditionally published books and some self-published books, and just over 77% of self-published writers make $1,000 or less a year. And rich doesn't mean famous, of course, because how many rich writers can you even name? 10, 20, but kudos to me for knowing who I really was and becoming her, being her, no matter how much I was struggling with this negative messaging around money. Because I am a writer, I really do believe I was put on this earth to tell stories, and if I was a doctor or something, people would just die. So it's good that I took this path, and I'm truly grateful because I do make more than the average amount just because I can pay my bills and because my wife has a job with health insurance, so I don't have to really worry too much about anything. I do worry. I absolutely worry and obsess, but I don't have to worry about anything. I'm not going to starve or end up in a ditch, I hope. But one of the reasons why I worried so much was because no matter how many books I published, no matter how my bills got paid, no matter how much I understood fully that I really am a writer, this is what I'm here to do, this is what I'm good at, I just wasn't happy. No matter how hard I worked or how well I did, it never felt like enough. And so I could never really be satisfied with any of my success or achievements. And I can't tell you how long this went on, of me striving, achieving something, still being dissatisfied, a decade, 15 years, I'm not even sure how long it took me to realize that it never felt like enough because it was never about the money. I never actually wanted Scrooge McDuck piles of money. For all intents and purposes, money is just paper. It's just a stand-in. What I really wanted was the freedom that money represented, the safety it represented, and even more than freedom and safety, I wanted to finally be worthy of my father's love because that's what money represented, was finally being worthy. But none of these things could actually be achieved by getting rich. It doesn't matter what the state of my bank accounts are, because plenty of rich people don't feel free. Plenty of rich people don't feel safe. Who worries about losing their money more than rich people? They're obsessed. And I've yet to hear anyone on this whole planet mention, oh yeah, when I got rich, my father totally got over his narcissism and started to love me and value me as a human being. No, that never happens. He would do what he has done all of his life, which is take credit for my achievements. He would say, I succeeded because of something he did for me. There would never be any acknowledgement of worthiness. There would never be this display of free-flowing love. Freedom and love and safety, these are all mindset issues, not money issues. And because they're mindset issues, that means the only one who can solve them is me. Only we can solve our own mindset issues. So I ask you, when you worry about money, when you dream about having enough money to do this or that, what are you really wishing for? Look at your money history. Look at your family's history with money. Read some good mindset books. The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist is a good one. I started with that one. But I also really enjoyed Happy Money by Ken Honda. That was another good one. Journal, do some visualization, whatever you've got to do to figure out what it is that you believe about money. And more importantly, what money really means to you. Because there's getting rich, which is absolutely a noble pursuit if it's for the right reasons. If you want to take care of your loved ones or invest in people or heal the planet, there are plenty of good things that can be done with money. 
But if you're money hunting because you have some void in your heart or unease in your mind, you're never going to get there. You will never, no matter how much green is in your pockets, feel well cared for. So in my case, for example, now that I'm aware that what I really want is to feel worthy and loved, to feel safe and free, I look for other, far more obtainable ways to achieve those things. Ways that are not dependent on money because money is flimsy. Money comes and goes. Rich people become poor. The poor become rich and then poor again. Money is wild. But I can build loving relationships. I can create a loving support network. I can invest in myself and my own skills to make sure that I have options and things that I want to do. I can build my faith in my own strength and adaptability. I can nurture my love of myself and my boundaries. And so that when I have all of that, I will always be safe. I will always be free and supported. And having money or not having money will not change that. So that's what I'm doing instead. That's where I'm turning my energy, my focus. And do I still have money fears? Of course. Because part of my narratives around money are so connected to worthiness and safety, which are deep core issues, sometimes I'm going to experience a poverty mindset whenever I feel unsafe or unworthy. Those fears are going to crop up. But at least now I know what's going on and I can talk sense to myself when the fear shows up. I can hit up a good friend and be like, hey, I'm spiraling about money again. Can you please top me down from this ledge? Can you please remind me of all the times that I thought disaster was going to strike, that I was going to starve and end up under a a bridge like a troll, but then in fact nothing happened to me because I am actually far more capable than I usually give myself credit for. And then they can be like, yeah, sure, let me tell you about that time. So we keep building these tools and these capabilities and these opportunities and these options for ourselves so that we can manage the fear. It's not that we'll ever completely eradicate it. To be human, to be living in these meat sacks known as human flesh comes with fear. We're going to experience fear. But we can manage our fear. We can make sure it doesn't dominate and control our minds. But for today, all I ask is that you consider the possibility that your desire for money might not really be about money. And only you can answer the question, what do you really want? And if it turns out that it's not money, or at least it's not just money, then ask yourself if there's a better way to fulfill those needs that aren't dependent on something as insubstantial and flimsy as money. What else could you do to cultivate your heart's desire? What other possibilities do you have? What could you start working toward? What could you start building right now instead of waiting forever for, quote, the day when you have all the money in the world? These are just some things to think about. And here we are at the end of the episode, and I know what I've said today is very counterintuitive, especially in American culture where this idea of success is so closely tied to financial wealth. If you're not rich, you're not making it. I would go so far as to say that some people even worship it. And so to come on here and say that it might not be money that you want, that, that is a lot to take in. So just sit with the idea for a minute, think about your experiences, and see what comes up for you. And as always, my sincerest wish is that you found something useful in today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening, and I will be back next week. Until then, please take good care of you. This episode of A Well-Cared-For Human was written and produced by me, Cory Marie. The music was by Late Night Feeler and Esther Abrami. If you like what I'm doing here, please consider visiting my Patreon. 
For as little as a dollar a month, you get early ad-free access to the episodes, as well as a monthly patrons-only Q&A, bonus videos, and more. Not to mention that your Patreon support lets me know that you find value in the show and want it to continue. You can find me on Patreon by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Marie. If you can't support the show financially, that is okay. You can still subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, and recommend the show to your friends, not just the neurotic ones. All of this helps so much. And as always, thank you for listening.